Hello, friends. If you are a regular listener to the podcast channel of Knox United Church in Lanigan, Saskatchewan, you will likely recognize my voice. My name is Frances Kitson. I'm the minister with this congregation. I'm currently recording this in May of 2023. And so having been with this church for two years, you'll have heard my voice on um, other episodes delivering the sermon. Now, usually our podcast episodes are recordings of sermons delivered in the church. This one is different. Throughout the spring of 2023, our congregation has been meeting together or folks who are interested have met together once a month to discuss particular hot button social topics, uh, especially around the question of uh, the United Church's policy, theology, and uh, teachings around these issues. Uh, the issues in question have been abortion, medical assistance in dying, homosexuality, particularly around the question of why does the United Church have such a different stance from just about all other Christian churches, um, and we will be concluding with a conversation around reconciliation. So uh, these discussions have been in person and they've been fruitful and interesting and engaging, uh, but of course not everyone can come in person and uh, sometimes it's just handy to have some of the information available afterwards for a little reflection. So I am wanting to share these uh, conversations or some reflection around these topics in this format to be made available wherever you might be geographically. And uh, so today we are gonna start on the question of abortion. Now, I want to first give you our name. Oh, excuse me. It's a Saturday evening while I'm recording this. This is the glamorous life of clergy. All right, so um, I want to give you uh, a couple of resources. So the first one, actually the only one that I think is publicly available, is actually a website. Uh, it's called United Church Commons. And uh, the actual address is commons.united-church.ca. And that commons is C-O-M-M-O-N-S. Uh, like, um, you know, the public commons on which people used to graze their animals. Um, if you lose that address, uh, you can always go to the United Church website, united-church.ca. And in the search bar, just type in commons. And so it, this website um, contains uh, public documents, um, including a whole folder called, excuse me, ooh, Saturday night, what we believe and why. And then if you open that up, there's a number of subfolders on different topics. So disabilities, economic justice, ecumenical and interfaith relations, environment and ecology, gender and sexuality, health, human rights, indigenous justice, intercultural ministries, membership, ministries in French, peace, theology and mission of the church. And so all of those um, contain um, publicly available documents that are, uh, I think, often policy statements that have, or policy documents that have been accepted by general counsel over the years. So if you want to find out what the United Church believes and why, that's a great place to go. 
Another uh, source that I'm using that I've heavily used for this particular presentation is um, an academic article published in 2000. It's titled A Social Ethical Analysis of the United Church of Canada's Historical Approach to Human Sexuality. And it is written by Dr. Tracy J. Trothen, who used to teach, well, taught at the time of this article at what was then the Faculty of Theology at the University of Winnipeg, which I'm pretty sure no longer exists, but I could be wrong. Uh, the journal is called um, Studies in Religion, and like I say, it was published in 2000. Uh, this is an academic article that I accessed through as an alumna of um, Vancouver School of Theology. So it's not necessarily publicly available, but should you happen to have credentials to get you into academic journals, it is, as I said, Studies in Religion, issue 29 or number 29, issue 3. I'm not sure how that works. 29 slash 3. Year 2000, pages 325 to 339. Uh, Dr. Trothen is currently, let me look her up. I know this, I've seen this before. She's currently at Queen's University um, at the School of Rehabilitation Therapy. So there you go. Um, and she's an ethicist. Uh, okay, so those are the sources I'm using. So what I'm gonna do is um, go through fascinating topic, sorry, uh, go through a bit of a history of the United Church's stance, position, approach to the question of abortion, and then uh, do some theological reflection. Okay, so the thing about abortion is that it's automatically connected to other issues, contraception, marriage, uh, gender roles, sexual ethics, and one's understanding of all of those. So a little history background. The United Church of Canada was officially formed in 1925, but its roots go back further. 1902 was the year that the creation of a United National Protestant Church was first proposed, and its basic theological principles were then drafted in 1904. So, although the institution did not legally exist until 1925, its beliefs and a lot of the founding documents that were used in 1925 come from the first decade of the 20th century. So, actually, by 1925, when the church was formed, a lot of these documents were considered already out of date. Uh, which just, just goes to show that institutions cannot keep pace with the Holy Spirit. All right, so 1904, uh, theological principles were drafted. This was a time of what is called the social gospel. And I'm going to quote this online article from the Canadian Encyclopedia, www.thecanadianencyclopedia, all one word, dot C-A, and then search social gospel. So uh, it describes it like this. The social gospel is an attempt to apply Christianity to the collective ills of an industrializing society and was a major force in Canadian religious, social, and political life from the 1890s through the 1930s. Its central belief was that God was at work in social change, creating moral order and social justice. It held an op optimistic view of human nature and entertained high prospects for social reform. 
Leaders reworked such traditional Christian doctrines as sin, atonement, salvation, and the kingdom of God to emphasize a social content relevant to an increasingly collective society, end quote. So you can see how um, being rooted in this kind of uh, movement, outlook, perspective, um, would take into account in its ethical reasoning more than um, one individual's relationship with God, but also would consider things like outcomes, consequences, social and economic realities um, in putting forth ethical positions. So the idea is, um, and this has strengths and weaknesses, but the idea is that uh, no morals or ethics um, happen in a vacuum. They happen in a lived reality in a particular time and place, and they have real bearing on people's lives. Now, um, there was another church movement at the same time called the Social Purity Movement. This is my first quote from Tracy Trothen. I hope you're finding this interesting and uh, not yawning. I find this interesting. It's just that, you know, it's 7.30 on a Saturday night. And I'm old, not old. Anyhow, carry on. Okay, so uh, Dr. Trothen writes, this movement, the social purity movement, was concerned not simply with the outward behavior of individuals, but particularly with the inner life. The state was often called upon and expected to take a primary role in the shaping of this inner morality. So that's a, a the idea. You can see how that fits nicely with the social gospel, that there's a role for the collective, particularly the national collective, to um, influence the lives of people. Okay, carrying on with Dr. Trothen, organizations such as women's groups and churches were attributed much greater recognition as compared to their contemporaries as bodies whose members offered needed and respected knowledge. Those whom we would designate as professional and expert voices today, such as doctors, psychiatrists, and social workers, were not yet recognized as authorities regarding moral issues. Therefore, there was a far greater degree of collaboration between women's groups the church and the state. And that's from page uh, 327. Um, so um, what Dr. Trothen is saying is that um, churches, and when she said women group, women's groups, we're talking like, you know, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, um, we're talking women's missionary societies, women's auxiliaries, um, all kinds of active women's groups that often were connected to social service or churches. Uh, so they were at the table when policy was being formed, which is a really interesting reflection of some of the assumptions of the time. So like Dr. Trothen writes, um, our professionals and experts of the day might be medical authorities, um, economists, um, who else? Uh, now I'm blanking, but basically people who have trained and have particular credentials and expertise in particular fields. Back then, this is, you know, a hundred years ago, um, the women's groups and churches were kind of, and, and I would say probably, um, 
you know, uh, ministry personnel and clergy were seen as having expertise through, I would guess, their moral um, authority and knowledge of, you know, scripture. Um, so there's much higher value and assumption about the place of religion, and by religion, I mean Christianity, in the public sphere. Okay, so all of this points to um, how the United Church doesn't tend to tell its individual members how to act or what to choose, right? So when people ask me, well, what is the United Church's position on something? The United Church's positions tend really not to be prescriptive. They're not very instructive or um, they don't particularly or directly explicitly forbid, um, instruct, uh, permit its membership. That's not an authority that the United Church structure assumes for itself. Um, and like I said, being based in the social gospel, the United Church has a tendency to consider context, um, lived experience, uh, likely or potential consequences. Um, and you can argue that that's good or bad or both, but that tends to be where we come from. Uh, there's always an understanding that there's um, that every situation is different and the United Church tends to trust the moral uh, worth and agency of its members to make their own decisions. Okay, now around abortion, we actually, to, to understand where the church gets to, uh, we need to look at its history of addressing contraception. So birth control that prevents the um, fertilization of an egg and the creation of a fetus in the first place. So in 1932, the church or a particular body within the church, some particular board whose name I don't have, published a report titled The Meaning and Responsibilities of Christian marriage. So, of course, as the title suggests, it focuses on marriage, but within that, um, it, it addresses questions of procreation, which then leads um, contraception into the picture, which then um, its manner of addressing contraception would later have direct bearing, I think, on how it would address questions around abortion. So, the authors of this report um, wrote that um, for married couples, um, it would be reasonable to use contraceptives when, quote, it is reasonably certain that any offspring will be in the form of a stunted humanity and a burden to society, end quote. Uh, it would also be reasonable to use contraceptives if the woman's health would be seriously endangered or if too many children would undermine the care that the parents could give to each of them. So, there you see the social gospel in action. Like, what does this look like? What have we seen? Um, what dangers, uh, uh, health complications, deaths, uh, what kind of childhood malnutrition um, or um, uh, ill clothing have we seen? Um, and are, are, you know, possible without the use of contraception? Um, and then, of course, the question of, you know, um, this, this, this line about stunted humanity and a burden to society, I think that one is trickier because 
Um, there is the, also the counter question of, well, if you, um, like what counts as a burden on society? How do we qualify who is a burden? Um, there's plenty, I would argue, of able-bodied uh, people who um, manage to be a burden to society by virtue of um, greed. And um, so if your argument is that the state can't offer the means of someone with um, physical or cognitive challenges having a, you know, healthy and fulfilling life, well, maybe the problem is actually the state. And my particular, here's an injection of my own opinion, um, as uh, ultrasound techniques, uh, technology have improved and um, uh, Down syndrome can be tested for during pregnancy, um, what it has meant is a rise in the number of uh, fetuses with Down syndrome who, uh, pregnancies with Down syndrome that, that are aborted, uh, which basically means um, we have fewer people per capita with Down syndrome in our population. Um, there is no way I am going to point the finger at any person who decides that they are not capable of supporting a child with those extra needs. And I would also argue that our society is much poorer for the absence or the uh, diminishment of um, folks with Downs in our population. Um, without romanticizing or simplifying uh, because it, it is not easy to um, have someone in the family um, or, or can be difficult uh, to, to have someone in the family with Downs. Um, it also can be an enormous privilege and uh, gift and blessing. And um, what we sometimes will call a burden in terms of care can also be a relationship that is uh, deeply rewarding. But I don't think it's always one or the other, right? It's not like, um, uh, you know, a, a relationship of care, and now I'm thinking more of people, you know, like elders um, who are in cognitive and physical decline, a relationship of care for, for an aging parent can be incredibly meaningful and exhausting at the same time. So when or where or why someone is a burden, I don't think that's a straightforward question. Okay, opinion over it. Now, so this report, this 1932 report, The Meaning and Responsibility of, of Christian Marriage, this states that the final decision must rest with each couple who are um, entrusted that they will consider their faith, their situation, and conscience. So to quote Dr. Troven here, the ultimate responsibility was removed from the institution and placed on the couple. This position could be understood as one of trust and regard for the moral agency of individuals, or as one that refused to take a clear stand on the use of contraceptives, end quote. So this is a criticism that the United Church has faced, faces, probably will continue to face, um, that basically we don't stand for anything. Right, we don't um, 
we don't have firm positions on anything that we don't and as such we don't really have any moral clarity or agency or authority uh, that we're kind of wishy-washy um and i think dr troven um outlines that really nicely like how do you how do you perceive the approach of the united church again it could be one of trust and regard for the moral agency of individuals we trust you to make your own decisions we offer what we can we offer the education and instruction and faith formation that we can and then we leave it to you or as dr trothen writes it could be one that refuses to take a clear stand on the use of insert blank right like we just can't make up our minds and um you know, there's arguments on both sides for that. Alrighty, 1936, we get another report. The report of the Commission on Voluntary Parenthood and Sterilization. Okay, um, so this is a dark, this is where we get a bit of a dark shadow uh, with the social gospel. And I am not an expert and I have not researched this. So I only want to touch on it lightly because I don't want to give the wrong impression. But, um, this was an age in which, um, many people, uh, within and without the church were interested in and, uh, seriously considering the, uh, role of the state in, um, eugenics. So choosing, um, you know, people basically involuntary sterilization, this happened, um, in Canada. Uh, I believe there is an Amnesty International report that states that actually it still happens, has happened to with Indigenous women. Um, but also, um, questions of, uh, how to, uh, in terms of looking at the consequences of actions, how do we make sure that, you know, basically everyone who comes out is healthy? How do we ensure a healthy population? And I would say there was also um, a fair degree of blurring the lines between um, physical and moral well-being. Right, so um, a healthy body w could reflect a healthy mind and soul, um, which is wrong. So um, this is this is where um, the 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 social gospel's flaws uh, become more clear. Right, so there's no doubt that the social gospel led to a lot of good and continues to guide the United Church today in our DNA. Uh, we're very clear that God cares about more than individual souls or professions of belief. God cares very much about how we're acting, how we as a collective are interacting with the world and the social realities in which people live. Um, but the social gospel has its flaws. One of them is the, uh, the over-enthusiasm or well in good intentions gone wrong. And sometimes they go very, very, very wrong. So, um, what happens is that we very easily start believing that we know best, right? That, um, we are here to build the kingdom and because we have the moral authority the inherent moral authority of being the church uh 
we know better than certain populations what's good for them. Certain populations like uh, people with uh, cognitive mental challenges, populations like single unwed mothers, um, populations like the poor, right? Like there's a lot of uh, history in Christian do-gooding of, um, you know, sort of middle-class women, um, well, and men, middle-class people um, thinking that the poor are poor because they're ignorant or because they're inherently messy and disorganized and um, unhygienic. And that there's a sort of moral superiority that requires us as a kind of noblesse oblige to um, teach these poor people how to not be poor. Um, and look, you know, there's plenty of people in all economic classes who need instruction on, well, just how do you you know, clean a bathtub, you know, after your kids uh, been in there with diarrhea, you know, or, or how, how do you, um, you know, change a diaper? Um, or how often or, or, you know, how do you like, we, we all need help with with parenting um, and life techniques, but um, the assumption that the poor people are just kind of this, um, you know, this, this, this hapless collective who need our help um, is a problem and its darkest side can be seen with uh, questions around eugenics and who is worth bringing into this world. Okay, um, now, the, so 1936, the report of the Commission on Voluntary Parenthood and Sterilization. So uh, around the question of contraceptives, this report argued that, quote, this is from Dr. Trothen, uh, the use of contraceptives could potentially protect the physical well-being of the mother, important, lower the infant mortality rate, important, and most importantly, strengthen family life, end quote. So here you can see very much again um, the social gospel at play, right? Like what effect does it have on the mother? Um, what are the realities of infant mortality? And can that be like, if, if you have fewer children, you're probably going to have, you know, you could well have uh, fewer infant deaths. Um, now, this note about strengthening family life, that's really interesting because family life was seen as being under serious threat in the 1930s. So the Great Depression put huge financial strain on families, um, breaking them up. Um, sometimes this meant that husbands or fathers abandoned their families. Uh, sometimes it meant that they left them in order to seek work elsewhere, but, you know, tried to send money home. Sometimes it meant that, you know, kids got divided from their siblings, uh, because, you know, one parental unit could not feed them all. So, you know, so-and-so goes to cousins, so-and-so goes to aunt and uncle, so-and-so goes to their older sister. Um... So there we have um, the early years, the 1930s, you know, this is about, this is around 10 or fewer years after the United Church is formed, their examination of contraception and sexuality, which would then inform abortion. Okay, so fast forward to the 1960s. As abortion policy changes in Canada, the United Church established a joint committee on abortion. And in 1971, it submitted a report to General Counsel, which General Counsel accepted, affirming that a fetus has value, a child 
has a right to be wanted. Abortion is morally justifiable in certain medical, social, and economic circumstances. And abortion should be a private matter between a woman and her doctor, with preference, with preference for consulting the male partner, but a recognition that this was not always possible. So, and you see in this report, a lot of the same reasoning, reasoning as these 1930s reports on marriage and contraception, which consider outcomes as much as anything. Uh, these reports, this report of 1971, did I say 71? Yes, also placed confidence in the moral agency of women and clearly stated that the well-being of women was an important criterion to consider. Um, 1972, a second report examined the effect of therapeutic abortion committees, which had been established in 1969 to provide means for legal medical abortions. So this was a panel of doctors who would um, review the case of a woman wanting to have an abortion and uh, basically ultimately give permission or not. You can see the problems that would come up, right? So um, sometimes I don't think these doctors all even always met with these women. They certainly weren't always experts in the field of um, uh, like the realities of uh, that, that a lot of women were facing. Um, and of course, the committees slowed down the process, meaning that abortions were occurring later in pregnancies and were less accessible to economically disadvantaged women. Now, why that last point? I'm not totally sure. I'm not sure if um, if economically advantaged women had other ways of getting safe abortions and so didn't have to wait for a three doctor panel to decide that they were allowed or not. Um, but the law by this 1972 United Church report was therefore seen as unjust and unworkable. Uh, so this, as you can see, shifts the question of abortion from personal morality to social justice. And then in 1980, General Counsel received a report titled Contraception and Abortion, uh, which furthered this social justice perspective, defining the issue primarily as one of equal access. This is the latest policy we have. Um, so in, uh, I'm just address, I just have them here. And again, both of these, this is available on the um, United Church Commons website. So um, this is from uh, originally 1980, and then it was a, uh, amended by the Executive Council of General Counsel in November 1989. Now that's significant because, as you may remember, 1988 was the year that the Supreme Court of Canada struck down the um, the then existing uh, provisions in the criminal code of Canadian law around abortion and said, come up with a new one, which the Canadian government never did. Actually, I'm not sure if that's true. I'm not sure if the Supreme Court ever said come up with a new one. But basically, um, since 1988, abortion in Canada is not regulated by the federal criminal code. Instead, it is seen as purely a medical procedure. I mean, on paper, um, it's a medical procedure and as such is regulated by uh, provincial jurisdiction. So um, where you can have an abortion and until what? point in the pregnancy you can have an abortion is different between different provinces and territories. Okay, so, but, uh, but this document is originally from 1980. Um, I'm going to read you the preamble. As Christians, we wish to affirm 
the sanctity of human life, born or unborn, that life is much more than physical existence. We also affirm that the taking of human life is evil. Our concern must not be limited to a concern for the unborn, but it must also include a concern for the quality of life as a whole. Life in this imperfect world often places us in a complex circumstances of moral dilemma and ambiguity, where values ultimate in themselves seem at times to be in conflict with other values and rights. We are called as a people of God to take responsibility for our lives and the world in which we live. This may involve making grave decisions relating even to life itself. Each of us is called upon in a freedom that is given by God and within the context of the community of faith to make responsible personal decisions even when choosing between two wrongs. As a forgiven people in Christ, it is possible for us to live in the midst of moral dilemmas. Within our community, strong difference of opinion on moral issues are our strength and not our weakness. So that's the preamble. And then it goes on to um, state, um, uh, make statements on um, uh, the desire of contraception, um, including um, uh, um, national, like widespread programs, um, sexuality, and of course, abortion. So uh, on abortion, it says, we affirm the inherent value of human life, both as immature in the fetus and as expressed in the life of the mother and related persons. The fetus is a unique, though immature, form of human life and as such has inherent value. Christians should witness to that value by stressing that abortion is always a moral issue and can only be accepted as the lesser of two evils and should be the most responsible alternative available in each particular situation. Therefore, abortion is acceptable only in certain medical, social, and economic situations. The previous law, which required a hospital therapeutic abortion committee to authorize an abortion, was unjust in principle and unworkable in practice. We do not support abortion on demand. We believe that abortion should be a personal matter between a woman and her doctor, who should earnestly consider their understanding of the particular situation, permitting the woman to bring to bear her moral and religious insights into human life in reaching a decision through a free and responsive exercise of her conscience. So it goes on to urge uh, the federal government to um, take the uh, provisions in the criminal code around regulating abortion out of the criminal code um to uh, uh regulate and um penalize uh people who perform abortions without required medical qualifications um and uh to require um all provincial governments to provide adequate contraceptive education and services um there's uh they also advocate for counseling early in the uh pregnancy to to prevent hopefully an ill-advised decision, uh, for information to be available to the woman about all possible options, um, contraceptive counseling, follow-up counseling, um, uh, urging churches, governments, and all helping agencies to ensure adequate community support for mothers choosing to give birth. And, um, uh, yeah. 
Um, so there we go. So there's that's that's some of it. So basically, it's it's again, you can hear it's not an explicit. You're allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do this. Don't do this. Do that. But it's a here's how we see it. Here's how we really think it ideally needs to be set up. So there's those, all those calls on governments at various levels to work together for all kinds of support holistically around the whole question, right? So abortion is not considered um, uniquely only solely by itself. It's not in a vacuum. Okay. So there you go. There is a bit of a history and some of the position of the United Church of Canada on abortion. And I just want to close with this. The, when we have the, our conversation in person, one, a couple of the questions that came up that people had was, were, uh, what does the Bible say about abortion? The thing is, the Bible says nothing about any issue. You take a Bible, you open it up, and I'm stealing this from a workshop I did with my colleague, the Reverend, Mich Reverend Mitchell Anderson. You take a Bible, a physical Bible, open it up to some random page, let it fall open and listen for 10 seconds. You're not gonna hear anything. The Bible does not say anything. The Bible is a mini library of stories. The Bible is primarily written in story, in poetry, in wise sayings, in letters. Very, very, very little of the Bible is explicit instruction of any kind. And the many of the parts that are explicit instruction are dealing, are offering explicit instructions for a world we don't inhabit anymore. Right? So here's what you do when your neighbor's oxen uh, trips and falls into your pond and drowns. Well, not many of us have oxen anymore or a pond on our property. Um, here's what happens when someone else beats up one of your slaves. Well, we don't have slaves. I mean, slavery still exists today in various forms, but we don't have slaves. So the question, what does the Bible say about anything is a loaded question to begin with, because whatever your answer, it's got some set of assumptions about how we read and interpret the Bible. And when engaging in conversation around interpreting the Bible, some assumptions about the starting place for doing that are so far apart that it's very difficult to have conversation. So it's important to recognize that nobody comes to the Bible neutrally. We all come with a set of values, assumptions, life experiences, um, were formed by things as simple as when we were born, what language we speak, uh, what kind of government we grow up under, what kind of clothes we wear, um, you know, what kind of family groupings are normal in our society, uh, what kind of structure do we live in, how do we get around, you know, by car, by donkey, by bike. Um, these are all questions that affect how we read the Bible. So, back to the question what does the bible offer about abortion again 
Ah, not much. If anything, really. Because the Bible uh, both has passages that um, affirm God's love for us before we're born, right? So there are passages um, in which um, uh, particular individuals are understood to be called by God before they're born. So the prophet Jeremiah uh, being one of these. Um, there's also the beautiful language of Psalm 139, for it was you who formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb, uh, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, in your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. So this is poetry and it's a hymn of praise you can interpret it to mean that well if god um, knows and loves us in the womb then we should not terminate life in the womb for it is known and loved by god i mean that's not a completely invalid argument and you can also go to genesis um chapter 2 verse 7, uh, at which point uh, where God breathed into the nostrils of the first human the breath of life, and the human became a living being. So you can also say that the Bible says life begins when breath is taken, when 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 someone breathes for the first time. So breath, uh, life doesn't actually begin until you're outside the womb and have taken your first breath. The Bible offers a library, as I said, of stories. And some of them are going to seem to contradict each other, right? So um, one of the great command, one of our Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. And yet in the book of Joshua, uh, God commands the Israelites to march into Canaan and slaughter without mercy um, all the people. Now the story becomes more complicated because they don't do that. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But um, the Bible offers all kinds of variation. So we are all, in the end, picking and choosing which stories, which verses we consider to be the most important. But for me, it always, always, always comes down to the great commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy mind all thy soul and all thy strength, and I always get the order of those words wrong, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. What does it look like to love my neighbor? That's not always an easy question, um, but I would argue that it means uh, making possible the flourishing and well-being of my neighbor. And so for what it's worth, I, as a minister of the church, um, fully, wholeheartedly support legal, safe action, um, free access to medical abortion. Whether or not individuals choose on a moral basis to avail themselves of that service, I think is a separate question. But I fervently believe that if, as we are seeing in the United States, Abortion is made inaccessible and illegal. Abortion is not therefore eradicated, but instead what happens, and here I'm showing my social gospel roots by considering the consequences, but what happens 
is that girls and women will die from botched, unsafe abortion attempts or complications that set in after abortion attempts for which they are too frightened to seek medical attention. Um, and that that is unconscionable. So if we, if uh, abortion is, as some people believe, a moral ill that needs to be combated, then I say, look at the, look at the causes and address those. Making something illegal doesn't make something go away. So there you are. That is my long and rambling presentation of the position and history of the United Church on the question of abortion, as well as some of my own interjections and musings. You're very welcome to contact me um, to uh, offer some of your thoughts uh, and certainly your questions if you have any with which I can help. Uh, my email address is francis.knox dot uc at fastmail.com f-r-a-n-c-e-s dot k-n-o-x dot u-c at f-a-s-t like the opposite of slow m-a-i-l dot com thanks for listening god be with you <laughs>